guys for being here. It's a real uh, honor to me to get to, to, to share with you this morning. If you're watching on the internet, shout out. I know Rick Meadow told me to wave at him. Hi, Rick. Done. And uh, we've got a lot of people who watch this class via the internet, and so it's an honor to have their time as well. Because this is a holiday weekend of sorts, we do have a lot of people visiting. So I want new material for you because many of you have been coming and you're hungry and you want more of what we've been talking about. But in the midst of that, I also want to make sure that we put it into the context of the flow of the class for those who are really here for the first time and haven't been been a part of what we've done thus far. So let's do that together. I've changed some things up in the review part so that if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you don't just fall asleep. If you do fall asleep, then um, your neighbor will elbow you when I get to the newer part. And that'll work fine as well. Please, please, please don't snore loud. Okay, now, within the framework of that, we're in a series that we started this year on looking at issues within the context of the Bible. Uh, I've called it as God guilty of fraud. You know, how can he say he's a God of love, and yet he says, go wipe out all the men, women, and children of AI? How can he say he's a God of justice, and yet he gives us mercy? How can he say dot, dot, dot? So in that larger context for the last seven or so classes, we've been dealing with the issue of how science and faith fit together. Specifically, we've examined the role of science and faith because what we're doing as people, at least as thinking people, I hope what we're doing is we're trying to make sense of the world around us. We're trying to make sense of it in terms of our relationships, our our work, what we've got to get done, how we take care of things. True. But even in a broader sense, what we've got to do as people with brains is try to make sense of this world. Why does the world work the way it works? Why do, do people get sick? What is the cause of this sickness? How can we bring medicine to help cure this sickness? What is the cause of of it being 90 degrees yesterday in Anchorage? And we have these weather uh, swings that seem dramatic. Is that something that's man-made? Is it not man-made? What can we do about it? There are lots of issues within this world that we need to address. And for a lot of people... Historically, they have, have tried to pretend that biblical faith and science are shouting at each other and in opposition. As if you've got the camp of faith and you've got the camp of science and the two cannot coexist under the same roof. And what I've been trying to work through in this class is an explanation that science and biblical faith We're talking about the faith from a Jewish slash Jewish Christian perspective. Biblical faith and science are not in opposition. The biblical teaching from our earliest Israelite roots is that God has developed science as a tool for us to use. So rather than being in opposition... The biblical perspective is that science and faith are friends, not foes. They assist and help each other. They don't stand in opposite camps shouting at each other. 
So then we've taken the time to look and ask, what does the Bible teach about science? Now, ultimately, what we want to get to in this class is some of the significance of the creation story that's given in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. And a little bit afterwards as well. But in the main, 1, 1 through 2, 3. So that's where we're headed. But that's not what the Bible per se is teaching about science in the sense that most people today read that and try to understand it. The Bible does teach the following. The Bible clearly teaches that the world makes sense. This is not a Harry Potter world. This is not a world where mages and magicians rule the day. Where if you've got the right incantation and spell, you can make this water not fall if I drop it. You, you, you're not going to defy gravity through some hocus pocus mojo. Okay, This world makes sense because God made it to make sense. The biblical teaching on science is that we are to pursue understanding the world. The world makes sense. God made it to make sense, and we are to try and understand it for what it says. We are to use science for good purposes. Science is a tool, can be used for good or evil. We are to seek to use science for good purposes. Now let's take a moment and make sure that I'm fair when I say the Bible teaches these things. First, the Bible says that the world makes sense. The creation story in Genesis 1 is based on six days of creation. Three of those days, God forms various things. And then three of those days, he fills that which he has formed. So God formed and filled a sensible cosmos and you can understand it so it starts out genesis 1 begins bareshit bara elohim et hashamayim va'et ha'eretz scott actually can probably pronounce the hebrew a lot better than me and the earth was tohu vabohu without form and void and that sets the stage for God's creation story. The earth was without form and void. So God is going to form that which is without form. And then he is going to fill that which is void. Those are the two groups of things that we read God doing. So we're to understand this story in its cultural context. And we see on day one, God forms light and darkness. On day two, God forms the heavens separating the waters. In their cosmic view, there were waters in the sky and waters under the earth. 
God separates the waters with the sky. Day three, God pulls the waters back to allow land to exist. And so God has now formed light and darkness, heavens, water, and land. Three days of forming, and now we have three days where he fills up that which he has formed. So it begins with him filling up light and darkness. And he does it with the sun for the ruling the day and the moon and the stars to rule the night. And he has now filled light and darkness. Then on day five, he fills the heavens and the waters. He puts fish in the sea and he puts birds in the sky. And so he has filled that which he has formed. And on the sixth and last day, he fills the land with animals, creepy crawly bugs, beasts, cattle, living creatures, animals. So we have three days where he has formed and three days where he has filled. The, pre- the, 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 the predicament of things at the start, the earth, form and without form and void has now been fixed. It's now been formed and it's now been filled. And so it allows God with the earth formed and filled to rest on the seventh day, the Sabbath day. So you see that God has formed and God has filled a sensible cosmos. But what's more as we read that story, we read that God made this world orderly, not only in the sense of the way he did it, but orderly and self-sustaining. So that the world's been made in a way where the world has an ability to continue. If you look at it from a science perspective, we understand this. But we read it in the scripture as let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed. So that the plant with the seed will be able to grow another plant. Fruit trees bearing fruit in which they've got seed. So that Johnny Appleseed can walk across the United States eating apples and throwing the cores and letting trees grow up. By the way, don't know that he's a real person. Don't know that that really happened, but we learned it in school. Each according to its kind. Each according to its kind. So you don't plant an apple tree and grow a grapevine. This is a sensible, self-sustaining, logical world. And it's set out for us to see that in the way this is written. You find it in a passage, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So it's not just the plants, but it's all sorts. You know, our our dog is pregnant. She's going to have her litter in 
Two weeks. By the way, our dog is not pregnant. This is a made-up story. (laughs) But if it were true, I would not be looking at Becky saying, I wonder if they're going to be cats. (laughs) This is a sensible world. It's a logical world. It was made in a way where the dogs are going to have dogs. It was so. God told people, be fruitful and multiply. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but wait a minute. My neighbors had a kid and he was a monster. That's an expression. He's still a human being. We have humans. This is the way it works. So the world makes sense. Now the next part is God said, so pursue understanding. You figure the world out. You look at it. You make sense of the world and then use this science for good. And you get that very early on in the Genesis story where God creates a garden and he takes the man and he puts him in the garden of Eden and says, I want you to work it and I want you to keep it. Now, work is a word that we're familiar with. You're not surprised. The word avad in Hebrew means to till uh, uh, the land or to tend a vineyard or to serve a meal or to serve a king or to, to it, it just means to work. Eved is the Hebrew word for a, a worker or a, um, a servant, okay? It comes from the same uh, tripartite verb. So you, you've got avad, meaning to work it, But then that other word, to keep it, that's the Hebrew word shamar. And shamar is a Hebrew word that's translated for the watchmen who watch a a, a city on the walls. It's translated to look intently at something and to make sense of it. It's to watch something intelligently. So it can be a guard because you watch for dangers to protect and you have to do assessments. You can translate the word guard. You can translate it with a lot of different things. But when God told humanity to keep the world, he did not mean protect it from space invaders. What he meant was don't just work it, but when you, part of working it is figuring out how it works. Putting it to good use. Learning physics and science. Because as the Genesis story unfolds, we know that the world is no longer in a paradise situation. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden and put into a world that is a, a, a let's see if my remote has just quit. Hold on, hold on, hold on, come back to me. Okay, it's like gone. No, I mean like y'all just lost everything. Are we, is it going to come back up? Never? (laughs) This is the apocalypse, you said? Okay, no. um, So when it comes back up, great. If it does not come back up, sorry. And we'll do the best we can. So here's the deal. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world under a curse. When God's kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, he says to the woman, in pain you're going to bear children. 
He says to the man, you're going to work in cursed ground. There are going to be thorns and thistles. It's going to be spelled job, not fun. It's, it's, it's not just great. It's going to be one where you've got to struggle to make it. Now, if God had left us with that curse alone, that would be a horrendous thing. But we are blessed to be in a situation where God says, I won't leave evil to win. So the biblical teaching is that in the midst of evil, you will find God, but God is working to bring good out of evil. That is the work of God. We're going to bring good out of evil. And if we're on his side, then we're trying to do the same thing. So husbands, when your wife is giving birth and she is in pain, we do not look at her and say, yeah, I'll bet that does hurt. It's your fault. Well, Eve's fault. If you women hadn't messed everything up. So you feel that pain. You feel every bit of it. <laughs> if you do that, you're headed for divorce court before the baby is born. We, we want to try and make things less painful. There is nobility in that. But there is also a tough situation where you've got to be careful how you do it. There's responsibility that goes with nobility. And that's the message. So the message biblically is that, oh, look at that. Wow. We just got it. Of course, we're like eight slides behind. So here's what I'd like you to do back there. Would you please punch in? Now keep going. We want punch in 20, enter into your keyboard. See what it does. 20, enter. Just punch in the number 20, enter. Did you do 20, enter? Yeah, thank you. That's good. So with that... There, let's see if this works. Oh, caramba. Science is our tool to combat the fallen world and make it not so dismal, bad, horrible, painful, brutal, frustrating, and everything else. Our daughters just got back from studying abroad. One of our daughters, Rebecca. Rebecca, are you here? Raise your hand, Rebecca. Okay, don't stand up because that would embarrass me. Um when you chide me about it later. Rebecca came back from, from Spain where she was studying abroad in Madrid. And there are some people in Madrid who think that air conditioning causes cancer. And I'm like, so they don't use air conditioning much in Madrid? Visit Madrid in the winter time. I mean, come on now. These things... Science is a tool. To, if we can find a way not to be so sweating hot, that's a good thing. Now, we don't want to do it if it really causes cancer. But trust me, I don't think it does. So within the framework of this, trying to see how science works, we come across that question of, is, are we here because of creation? Are we here because of evolution? And by evolution here, I mean macro-evolution, just big evolution stuff. 
Um, and people look at the Bible and say, well, I've got to make a choice. It's, it's either I believe the Bible or I believe in evolution. No, 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 no. That is not what Genesis 1 is being written to say. It's not being written to discuss it. We've got to be, look, I'm a conservative person when it comes to reading the Bible. And I am so conservative that I want to understand what it meant to the people it was first given to before I try to understand what it means for me. How you read and interpret the Bible is called your hermeneutic. Long word. You don't really need it. But it's there if you ever want to use it. Hermeneutic. How you read the Bible. Do not be guilty of a narcissistic hermeneutic. Do not be guilty of reading the Bible as if God wrote it just for you. And you are to interpret it based upon your life, your circumstances, your science, and where you are here in July 2019. That's, that's not being conservative with the text. Conservative with the text means I'm going to go to the trouble to try to read it for what it originally said and then understand it in light of today. So if, we, if, if that's not the issue of Genesis 1, let's start with the Bible and let's figure out what is the issue. And that means we've got to read it contextually, but not simply within its language context, verse, paragraph, sentence, etc. But we need to read it in its cultural context. We need to take that journey that takes us halfway around the globe to the Middle East but not only halfway around the globe, we've got to go back in time as well. Because we do not exist at the same time in which this message was given. If we don't go back in time, way back in time, then we're not able to grasp what it is. So we're going back to the Babylonian time, which is when the, the fall of Jerusalem happened. But we're going back even before that to the Assyrian Empire which is, uh, has the rule over Mesopotamia at the time of Moses and the Exodus. We'll go even before that. We'll go back to the Sumerian um, uh, Empire, back at the time of Abraham and the patriarchs. And if we read the text in light of what it said then, we'll do a better job of understanding it in our terms today. But as we read it, we need to know. God's concern wasn't trying to fix Israel's science. His concern was fixing their understanding of God, of humanity, of, 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 of the world around us in other important ways. And so if we read it with that focus, if we try to hear the ancient world in spite of our modern understanding then we're able to answer questions better. And so within this framework, I ask you this question. What is the cosmology? With reference, cosmology, the study of the cosmos, cosmic geography. You know, in our cosmology, you know it, we learn it. It's in the mobiles in their classrooms. We've got the sun as the center of our solar system. We've got planets that go around it. We've got 
Mars and Venus and, and Earth and, and all of these planets. And, and, and Earth spins around on an axis and it's got a moon that goes around it. And we're part of uh, the Milky Way galaxy and that's part of multiple galaxies and, and a vast universe with unknown dimensions. That's our cosmology. That was not the cosmology at the time that Moses gets the decrees from God on Sinai. It just wasn't. The ancients used common sense to make their cosmology. They didn't use the Hubble telescope. And common sense told them that there are certain things. Common sense said that there's, there's rain that's coming down from the sky. So if rain is coming down from the sky, they knew there must be water up there somewhere. And yet, down on earth, they're able to see water in the Mediterranean Sea, in the Red Sea, in, in the Persian Gulf. They're able to see water around us. They know there's water underneath the earth because you're able to see springs and lakes and, and that water's coming from the ground. You can dig a well and you can find water down there. In certain places, it's even closer to the surface. So they know there's water down there. So if you've got all of this water down below and you've got all of this water up above, what does it tell you? Well, let me just illustrate something here. If I've got water up here, which I now have, and I turn it upside down, will I have water up here anymore? No, unless I put the lid back on it. You've got to have something holding that water back. They thought that was a firmament. They called it a firmament. A firm disk. Some of them had it as an arched disk. But that's, that's holding the water back. Now that also had like stars attached to it. And the sun would travel across it. And so that's holding back the water. Now periodically there are these clouds that are like opening gates or windows in the sky. And the water comes out. Springs a leak. And that's what they thought was happening. This is why they say God separated the waters up there from the waters down here by the sky. And he puts a firmament. And then in the middle of the waters down here, he puts a bunch of dirt. Earth. Now if I've got a bucket of water and I put dirt in the middle of it as for my island, it's just going to sink to the bottom. So they knew that that dirt had to have something supporting it and keeping it firm while it's in the midst of being in the water. So they figured that there's something doing it. They have also know that something's got to be holding up the firmament. Some believed it were mountains because if you look far off, you see those mountains, maybe they're holding up the firmament. Some believed they were tent poles. We've got drawings from antiquity of tent poles, massive columns holding up the firmament. And then you've got the same thing coming down from the land that are the foundations of the earth. So that the earth doesn't all just sink under the water. And this was ancient cosmology. 
This is the way they saw it. This is the only terms in which they thought. And so when God delivers the the creation story in Genesis 1, he's delivering it to a cosmology that frankly you and I know is not accurate. But his concern wasn't trying to fix their science. He doesn't start. Genesis 1.1 does not read, in the beginning, E equals MC squared. And here is the periodic table so that you can understand how many electrons rotate around how many different atoms to make up these atomic structures that make up the molecules that make up the... No! This is a Mesopotamian concept. It's one that was there in Babylon. It's one that was there in Assyria. It's one that was there in Samaria. You can look at the Babylonian tablet where the sun god Shamash is there. And I showed you this last time. But this gives you a good illustration of it. That's the sun god Shamash. He's got four horns in his helmet type thing. That's a sign of him being a deity. Uh, In his hand, he's holding the, the circle and the stick. Those are measuring things and stuff. These are the stars down below his throne. And those stars are resting on the firmament. That's the solid bar. You see the wavy lines above the stars and the firmament. Those are the heavenly waters. You've got up here in the top three insignias. The one on the left is for the god Sin, S-I-N. That was the moon god, so that's his picture. Then the one in the middle is Shemesh, the sun god. The one on the right is Ishtar. She's the goddess of Venus. And so they exist up in the heavens. And that's where those gods are. Now, God used the ancient cosmology of the people, but he gave an entirely different message. And if we don't hear the message of Genesis 1, we're not hearing what God was shouting to the Israelites we can put it into our own perspectives of science and all the rest. That's fine. But here the message, one message that jumps out. I mean, it's a massive message. There's one uncreated God. Not many created gods. First word, Bareshit means at the, at, in the head, at the beginning, like at the front of the line. In the beginning, bara, he, third person, masculine, singular. He, single, individual, he created the heavens and the earth. Bareshit, bara Elohim, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is something that happens. This is not in those stories. If you take the most commonly known reference, we've got hundreds of tablets of copies of, of text uh, uh, of the Babylonian, ni Assyrian, ni Sumerian creation story called the Enuma Elish. And they start out, that creation story, this is, the, this is what Israel's neighbors had believed for a thousand plus years at the time of Sinai. And we'll continue to believe. 
This is the, the, the narrative. This is the, the, the storyline of Mesopotamia. We've got a different one from Egypt that we'll deal with next week. But this is the storyline from Mesopotamia. And Egypt's not that different. This is the storyline from Mesopotamia. And I thought we would read some of it and compare it to the Genesis story to understand the message of what God was saying. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of people and Janet Seifert reminded me of these conversations because she's had some as well with people who say, well, the Genesis story, you know, there are these other creation stories and they're all basically the same. And someone said that to me once and I said, have you read them? Well, they're all basically the same. No, no, I'm a lawyer. Answer the question. <laughs> Objection, non-responsive. Have you read them? Because I've read them over and over again. I've read them. They are the difference between night and day. So I thought we'd read some together and see that. And I think the best place to start is with tablet one of the Enuma Elish. So I brought the Enuma Elish. Here we go. Got the Elmo up. Good. Tablet one. Okay. Oh, I forgot. None of us do Akkadian. Never mind. Let's do an English translation. How about? When the heavens above did not exist. This is tablet one. Are y'all able to read that? Is the print large enough? Okay. And the earth beneath had not come into being. There was absolute. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to do a little family tree here. So you got Apsu, the first in order. Apsu. The first in order, their begetter. In Demiurge, Demiurge means like ancient, 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 long time ago. Tiamat. So you got Tiamat, who gives birth to them all. Now, Tiamat is also the Akkadian word. Sumerian word, I think, as well, um, for salt water, the oceans. So this is the salt water, and Apsu is fresh water. So you've got a god of salt water, and you've got a god of fresh water. And they give birth to them all. The them here are gods. They mingled their waters together. Uh, that's a reference to a sexual liaison. These are at least PG-13 in places. Um, they, mingled, they had mingled their waters together before there was meadowland or reed bed when not one of the gods had been formed or had come into being. The gods were created within them. Lamu, which is actually, I think, uh, the Akkadian word for hairy. So Harry's like one of the first made gods. But it's not a reference to Harry like the name Harry for us. It's Harry like, man, he's Harry. Um, Lamu and Lahamu were formed and came into being. So let's get our tree up here. They give birth to Lamu. I do not recommend that for a kid's name. Kid will get picked on like crazy. Lahamu. Lahamu. Spell it right. They have the kids. 
while, now, while they grew and increased in stature, Ansar, uh, Shar, Anshar, and Kishar, who excelled them, were created. Now, Shar is just a word that means totality. An is the sky, and Kai is earth in, in Akkadian. So this means that earth god and sky god were, were, were created. So now we've got, they got kids. These two get together. It's incest. Uh, they have, uh, that's just a modern legal term. Um, they have uh, on and key. In fact, the word on key is heaven and earth. Um, they have onshar and kishar. All of heaven and all of earth. So this is our, so then they prolonged their days. They multiplied their years. And then they had a son, Anu. So now we got another God coming in here. You get, uh, they get together, a little more incest, and they get Anu. Um, and Anu equals Anshar. So he's like as tough as his dad. Okay. Um, uh, and Anu begets Nudimud. That's, I mean, he was in, well, it's a bad joke, never mind. Nudimud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is like a really bad joke. And I think he's got two M's in there. Uh, he also goes by the name Ea. So, uh, not in the mood, uh, uh, has Ea. And uh, he's begotten. And then uh, he's a champion among his fathers. He was wise and discerning and strong. Stronger than his father's, his granddad, Anshar. He had no rival among the gods, his brothers. So they're having lots of other gods at the same time. Now, that's very different. That's the start. That's very different from what you read in Genesis 1. If we go back to the PowerPoint, Genesis 1... In the beginning, one God, period. And he doesn't start celestial incest to bear more gods. There's one God. If there's anything Israel got from Sinai, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. So, one uncreated God versus many created gods. Big difference. And that message rang loud. Next message. God. Ah, this is interesting. My PowerPoint's different than your PowerPoint. One God apart from nature rather than many gods who are in nature. We're going to, let me get you to my PowerPoint. I want to do this in a different order. I sent this wrong. Ah. Yeah, I've given you the wrong PowerPoint. Sorry. So it's okay. We can make do anyway. Let's do it this way. In the Genesis story, God creates space and time. In the Enuma Elish, the gods are subject and bound to space and time. Hugely different. If you're looking at Genesis, Genesis starts out, the, the significance of the day and night in that first day 
God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day. He called the darkness night. Now, he hadn't filled it. It doesn't have a sun, doesn't have a moon. He's not talking about 24 hours here. He's not talking about a Terran day where the earth is rotating around. He doesn't have a concept of the earth rotating around in the, in the hearer's minds who are hearing this story. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is God creates time. God creates time. Day is time. Night is time. In fact, we say daytime. Night time. Because those are time. God creates time. God's not a captive to time. Go back to the Enuma Elish. Look at the thing. So these brothers, these are all the created gods. They get loud. You know how boys will be. And it throws Tiamat. Now you're saying, okay, who was she again? Tiamat is like great, great, great grandma to all of these guys, okay? So you got all of these gods because they've had lots of brothers. And, you know, there are lots of kids. Uh, uh, all of these gods, I mean, they got gods and their gods have gods and their gods have gods with gods. And so there are gods everywhere. So you've got all of these gods and they're getting kind of loud. And it's really upsetting Tiamat. They jarred her nerves. Now you do not want to jar the nerves of great, great grandma goddess Tiamat. Remember, she's the ocean. Have you ever seen the ocean when its nerves are jarred? If you were in the Navy, I'm sure you have. By their dancing, they spread alarm in Anduruna. That's a place where the gods are living. It's like a subdivision. Apsu did not diminish their clamor. So great-granddad can't do anything about all of this noise. And Tiamat was silent when confronted with them. She's not saying anything. She's dysfunctional. Are you upset, honey? I gather the answer's yes. I've seen that on TV. Okay, their conduct was displeasing to her. Yet, though their behavior wasn't good, she still wanted to spare them. It's kind of like, you know, well, the kids, geez. And then Apsu, who's the begetter of the great gods, calls his vizier, his, his consigliere, his lawyer. And he says, uh, hey, lawyer Mumu, who gratifies my pleasure. That's what lawyers are supposed to do, make their clients happy. He says, lawyer, come on. Let's go to Tiamat. I got to go talk to my wife about this problem. So they go confront, and look what happens when they confer about it. He says, their behavior has become displeasing to me. I can't rest in the daytime. He doesn't create the daytime. It's already there, and he's subject to it. I can't rest in the daytime. I can't sleep at nighttime. Time is the God. And Apsu is just a befuddled old great-grandfather God who can't get his nap in because the kids are so loud. 
So I'm just going to destroy and break up their way of life so that there'll be silence and I can go to sleep. And he decides he's going to kill all the gods. By the way, I hope at some point you're saying, and people say these stories read just like the Bible. No, they don't. So here he's going to, he is captive to time. He's got to sleep and he's got to do all of these things. His time is his God. The Genesis story is very different. God creates the daytime. God creates the nighttime. Which God do you want to worship? The one with the jarred nerves and the dysfunctional marriage who wants to kill her kids? Which brings up another distinction. Now, and the PowerPoints are messed up and I don't want to spend the time jostling it. But their gods were supersized human beings. So they had longer life. They had uh, supersized emotions. They had all of the foibles of a human being. They needed sleep, uh, all the rest. God, the true God, is not a supersized human being. He's not an emotional person. He's not a fearful person. Look what happens. Tiamat, she hears this. She rages and cries out to her spouse. She cries in distress. She's fuming within herself. She grieves over the plotted evil. That's to kill the kids. How can we destroy what we've given birth to? I know that they're really bad kids, but maybe we can just discipline them. And then the lawyer Mumu speaks up. And says, uh, let, let me just say this. Um, a rebellious uh, uh, lawyer, this is his. He says, look, go ahead and just destroy them. They're being lawless. Then you can get some sleep. I mean, honestly, is there a, is there a celestial CPS that we can call Child Protective Services? God for GPS, the original GPS, God Protective Services. Opsu says, that's a great idea. We kill the kids and I can take a nap. And he says, lawyer, come here. I'm going to kiss you. By the way, if you ever have to hire a lawyer, that is not the preferred type of fee we like. <laughs> what they plotted in their gathering was reported to the gods, their sons. The gods heard it and were frantic. And I like this. They were overcome with silence and sat quietly. They're like, oh, dad's mad that we're making a lot of noise and he's going to kill us. Shh. Hold it down. What are we going to do? Shh. I mean, this is not the God who created everything good. This is not the one God. This is the message. This is the message Israel was hearing from everywhere else. This is the message that had been the message taught in Abraham's hometown of Ur. This is the message that was taught all over the place. This is the message that you find uh, 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 everywhere. And into this message, God says, no, let me tell you something. And he's not out to fix their physics. He's out to say, I got to fix your theology. There's one God. I made time, I formed it, and I filled it with the sun, the moon, and the stars to keep the seasons. 
I'm not captive to it. I'm not some supersized human. Don't make me in your image. I'm going to make you in my image. And God creates nature in Genesis. In the old stories, let me see how I'm doing time-wise. In the, oh, I got five minutes. All right, God creates nature in Genesis. In the contemporary accounts, the gods become nature. They are nature. Tiamat is the ocean, the salt water. Apsu is fresh water. Actually, not for long. Because what happens is, Ea, that's the one who's not in the mood. Ea, that's his other name, who knows everything, perceives their tricks. He fashions and makes it to be all-embracing. He executes a plan skillfully, an incantation. He recites it and sets it on the waters. Have you ever seen a lake that is just placid still? That's what he did. He took that freshwater god, Apsu, who was going to kill everybody, and he did an incantation that made it just placid, still waters. He poured sleep upon him. And he was slumbering deeply in its deep water that's just still. He put Apsu to slumber. And Mumu, his lawyer, was breathless with agitation. He's upset. He's saying, you know, why is the water so still? Why? Who's put Apsu to sleep? And then he splits Apsu's sinews. He rips off his crown. He carries away his aura. And he puts it on himself. He binds Apsu and he kills him. He kills God. So one God's killing another God. And when he kills him, he makes that God his dwelling. And so Apsu, half the time you read Apsu in the Enuma Elish, it's referencing the God Apsu, but half the time it's referencing just fresh water. Because that's, a, a, and, and the, the dwelling place of the God. And so he rests quietly in his chamber, and, and he called his chamber Apsu, where he killed him. And he lives there with his wife, Damkina. And uh, then they start having their kids, including Marduk, who becomes the hero of this story. I mean, the gods become nature. Marduk gets born, and Anu, his grandfather, decides, hey, this is really cool. I'm going to give him wind. And so, so the four winds get given to him. And that's really good, because Tiamat, remember the, the saltwater woman? She gets upset before this story is over and creates all of these dragons and monsters and everything to go to war to avenge the death of her husband. The gods find out about it and they're like, oh my goodness, now she's really mad. The ocean's going to take us over. Ocean waves are going to wipe us out. The ocean is going to sink the land. We got to do something. So what do they do? They get Marduk who gets his winds and he takes the winds and uses them against the ocean. And so she opens her mouth and a wind comes into it. Oh, this is, this is pretty lurid, man. Get a load of this. Look at this battle scene. Bell, that's another name for Marduk, spread out his net and enmeshed her, Tiamat. He let loose the evil wind, the rear guard in her face. The ocean, Tiamat, opens her mouth to swallow it. She let the evil wind in, but as a result, she thought she was devouring it, but she couldn't even close her lips. It weighed down her belly. 
Her inwards are extended and distended. She's opened her mouth to, to devour the wind, and the wind has just pushed her belly out and made her useless. So he lets fly an arrow and pierces her belly. He tears open her entrails and slits her inwards, bound her, extinguished her life, threw down her corpse, bam, and stands on it. Then he surveys the corpse to divide the lump by a clever scheme. He takes great-grandma and he splits her in two like a dried fish. One half he sets up and stretched out is the heavens. He stretched the skin, that's the firmament, and appointed a watch with the instruction, don't let her waters escape. That's why they're held back by the firmament. He crossed over to the heavens and surveyed the celestial parts. He adjusted them to match the the earthly uh, waters that that he had down here. And I mean, this is what he does. He, He placed the heights of heaven in her belly. And then he creates Nanar for the night and says, shine over the land. This is the way, and he's got Shamish on the horizon in the sun. This is what they've got. Now into this comes a very different message. A message that says, God is not one of many. He's one. He's not nature. He made nature. Don't worship the ocean. That's worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Don't worship the sky. Don't think that the morning star is Ishtar. Don't think that the sun is Shamish. Don't think that the moon is Sin. Don't think that constellations are the various gods. By the way, did you know why astrology took hold in Babylon? Because they, you were born under those stars. So those were gods who were dictating your destiny. Because they were watching when you were born. Bible says, don't mess with that. That's not God's dictating your destiny. Your destiny is dictated by you and the God. And it's a very different message. And perhaps one of the most stellar differences. Look at the creation of man. Marduk. Uh, he's made king God because he was able to kill Tiamat. And everybody's happy and everybody loves him. And he says, look, I want to do something really clever. So he talks to Ea. That's the not in the mood God who's the father of wisdom. And he says, look, I want to bring together blood and form bone. I want to bring into being Lulu, man. I'm going to create Lulu, man. That's not Louis Miori, by the way. He's Lulu, boy. On whom the toil of the gods will be laid that they may rest. So they got to figure out how to make man. Look how they're going to do it. Let one of the brothers of theirs be given up that he may perish and people be fashioned. We need to kill a god so that we can make people. So who should we kill? Hey, who was the god that Tiamat put in charge of her armies? I forgot. Oh yeah, that was Kingu. He's the one who instigated the warfare. He's the one who made Tiamat rebel and set that battle in motion. So they bound him. They brought him before Ea. They inflicted the penalty on him. And they severed his blood vessels. 
And then from his blood, they created mankind. Why? On mankind, he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. And that gets said over and over and over in the text. Man was made to do the work of the gods because the gods were getting tired. And into this comes the Genesis story where God makes man not to do his work. God's work is finished. God rests. He's through. God makes man to be in a relationship. God makes man and walks with him in the garden. God makes man and fellowships with him. Man is made in God's image so that man is a creature, a being that can relate to God. God has made nature for humans to use for humanity's good. Nature is not God to be worshipped. I was around these people one time who were worshipping a tree. They gathered hands around a tree in a big circle. And saying, morning has broken. And I'm, I'm just thought, you know, I wish I had a loudspeaker. I'd be playing smoke on the water, you know, or something to counter the... That, that's just, that's not what we do. We don't worship nature. Nature is our tool. Our problem is we read this Genesis story as people who all have taken science and watched the Discovery Channel when there's nothing else on on TV. And so as a result, we tend to read it from a narcissistic angle and we're missing the import of the story. The import of the story is really clear. There is a God who has made us and this world around us because he loves us, wants to be in a relationship with us, but we are sinners who have chosen to disobey and to sin against God, and we live in rebellion to him, even though we know deep in our hearts we're made for more than this, and there's got to be more meaning and purpose to life. And so God reveals himself to us because left on our own, we just come up with a bunch of garbage ideas as we make God who we think he should be instead of accept him for who he is. So that's some of the lesson. Now I want to compare next week the Egyptian creation stories and let you look at them and see how these same messages came out. Can I bless you before we leave? Father, thank you very much for the chance to be in your presence today and to study your words. Thank you for speaking through the ages and for giving us a, an opportunity to understand the greatness of who you are. Father, would your face shine upon us? Would you bring us shalom, bring us your peace, your fullness, your wholeness, your satisfaction as we seek to serve you in our lives? We pray through you. Amen.